I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Kendra Kritz. Uh, Dr. Kritz, in this uh, podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their uh, scientific career. So where do you consider yourself to be on, uh, in your career? Uh, so I'm an incoming assistant professor in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at University of British Columbia. So in terms of where I am relative to the rest of my academic career track, I just finished a couple years of postdoc positions, and then I was a lecturer at University of Oregon. And so now I'm just getting up to the tenure track uh, professor rank. Now, Kendra, what kind of scientist are you? Um, You're a geochemist, right? But not just a geochemist. Yes, that's correct. So I, when people ask me this question, I usually give two answers. So the first way I sort of designate what I do is as a geochemist. Um, So I look at the chemistry of rocks and ancient soils and plant material and organisms living and dead and fossil to reconstruct what their environments were like and what their life histories were like. So on the one hand, I am a geochemist, and then on the other hand, I'm a paleoecologist, which is the sort of function of what I do, which is reconstructing past environments and past organisms. That's really cool. And they overlap, right? Yeah, they overlap a lot. So geochemistry and the kind of geochemistry that I do, which is called stable isotope geochemistry, is a particular method where you can look at the different elements of or different species of common elements in biological tissues and geological materials. So things like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, And they go really well together because these different elements are sort of tracers for different processes. So we can measure different kinds of carbon in, say, tooth enamel of a fossil or a living creature. And that carbon is a record of what that animal has been eating. So that old saying, you are what you eat, is very true when it comes to stable isotopes. And that's the entire process that we use to understand uh, the life history of organisms. So they go together really well and really naturally. That's a really unexpected use or application of uh, geochemistry. Yeah, it is. And the field specifically applying this kind of analysis, which in the past has been used for kind of really specific earth science applications like the evolution of you know different continents or magma or the oceans and that's kind of how the method was developed but then over time we realized that we were noticing that you could look at different kinds of elements in biological tissues as well and it was giving us these distinctive kind of signals or distinctive markers or traces of different biological processes So this part of the field is still fairly young, looking at isotopes in biological tissues. It started in the 1970s, 1980s, 
and it's kind of reaching its maturity now. So it's becoming a commonly used tool in a lot of fields like ecology, uh, anthropology, archaeology, forensic science, things like that. How did you get into this young field? Yeah, so I, I've always wanted to be a scientist. I'm still kind of on my A plan for my career from the time I was a child. And it's funny because I, I never quite landed on exactly which kind of scientist I wanted to be. I loved archaeology. I loved rocks. I loved digging in dirt. I loved, you know, living organisms. So I kind of wanted to know how all of it worked and how all of it went together. And I landed on an interest in biology. So when I went to university, I studied biology and chemistry. And by chance, I came across an undergraduate research experience in Ireland. And I applied to go for the summer of my second year after university. And I got in. And the project that I was assigned to do was to do stable isotope analysis on this ancient deer that lived in the last ice age in Europe. It was called the giant Irish elk. It was massive. It had an antler span of three and a half meters. They're, they're crazy looking. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that, you know, in addition to learning more about how the world around us works, there's this deep history too. And I just got really hooked on this idea that we could use this tool as like a time machine to tell what these animals were doing when they were alive. So I got, you know, in a lot of ways, I got really lucky because my first research experience ended up being the thing that I love to do, and I'm still doing it all this time later. A major trend in the natural sciences right now seems to be um, taking a holistic perspective on environments, but it seems like you've taken that to like the third dimension by taking a holistic perspective on environments through time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it's, I feel like we're learning how to integrate our knowledge of environments and putting a time aspect on it. And that's the thing that really interests me. So in some ways, I used to think of myself as predominantly an ecologist, but working on timescales much greater than the lifespan of an ecologist, which is usually the limit to which ecologists can work on. And I love being able to trace the deep history of environments going back, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, even sometimes millions of years. You answer my next, next question, uh, how far you go back. Uh, where do you generally hang out? My, my particular uh, interest of work in understanding past environments, I work on a lot of diverse systems, but my specific interest is trying to understand the deep connections between humans and their ecosystems. And now we think of this in the context of how we are impacting ecosystems. So we're, we're really heavily changing and modifying the ecosystems that we live in. But the thing that interests me is when the transition happened from sort of being organisms on the landscape of our ecosystem and participating as members of that ecosystem to becoming the major drivers of ecosystem processes, which is what defines the Anthropocene, this period of time that we live in now. So I work specifically on questions pertaining to uh, human history and human evolution. So most of the research I do is in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, because that's where we evolved. 
And uh, specifically, I work in Kenya and different parts of Eastern Africa, but most of my field work is done in Kenya. Um, but I also work on trying to understand, you know, that also those recent transitions in, the, in, in kind of closer to our modern day lives. And I do some projects also trying to understand novel ecosystems that we are creating. So I've also done field work in um, American cities, which is really fun. <laughs> it's, it's a great method of science communication when you're in a curb strip coring a tree in front of someone's house and they ask you, what are you doing? So I, I, you know, I get a little bit of everything. I get to go to the field. I get to go to these far-fung places in uh, Kenya, but I also get to work kind of in our backyard here. So it, I get to spend a lot of time in really great places. Uh, we just installed our hallway of human, human evolution, which includes um, replicas of 10 of the iconic early hominid skulls. And so I've been spending a lot of time learning about these uh, different iconic specimens. Do you happen to have a favorite? Ooh, that is a really tough question. So I actually, I've been doing some projects. I'm involved in a project now where we're trying to take really small isotope measurements of hominid teeth from Kenya to explore the variation in diet through time from about 4 million years ago to 1 million years ago. And of all those different hominins, some of my favorites are, I mean, I, I love Homo erectus, of course. You know, the first member of our lineage, the probably early hunters, probably harnessed fire first. You know, they, they made all these amazing stone tools and they had this technology that spread out across the world. Um, and they were, they originated about 2.3 million years ago. And their diet is, is this really interesting shift from their previous ancestors. There's a trend towards this particular kind of using resources in kind of open savanna environments. And we don't know how much meat they ate. That's kind of an overwhelming, you know, that's one of these big questions we're trying to ask. But there's something really different about Homo erectus. There's something so unique about it that I really love. And I also love Boisei, Paranthropus Boisei, which lived at the same time as Homo erectus, but it was this branch point in our evolution where these other group of hominins sort of evolved in a different direction and then eventually went extinct. And Boisei is so interesting because people call uh, the old name for Boisei was the nutcracker because they thought that he has these, these uh, specimens have these really huge molars with this thick enamel and they were ground flat. So people used to think that they must be eating these hard materials like nuts. And then through isotopes, we learned that they're eating something like grasses, basically. <laughs> and, their yeah, and their diet doesn't really change. And so they have this really fascinating dietary history, which is so interesting. So yeah, I guess I see this from the perspective of the diets is how I think about this mostly. And I've been really fortunate through working on these projects. I've also spent a lot of time in the vault in the National Museums of Kenya where these skulls are kept. And I've, I've actually seen a lot of these specimens in person. And it's always this really incredible experience. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned the... Uh... The replicas that we have, if they, they aren't a uh, good enough quality, you might see uh, see the difference. No, it's I think it's it's so important for people to be able to see casts, and I think that a lot of people get confused on what the purpose of a cast is, but it is it's a scientific mold. It's something that can be studied, and it's so 
great because these fossils are, you know, they're very sensitive and we need to preserve them kind of in perpetuity. So they can't really travel very much. But the ability to see all these casts of all these specimens is so important. And I'm really glad that there's a display up at uh, the Pacific Museum of Earth. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Absolutely. I look forward to showing you. Now, you mentioned what you're working on right now. Um, have you made any discoveries in the past that you're really proud of or, or that you haven't already mentioned? Because, I mean, it sounds like you've already got a lot of cool discoveries under your belt. <laughs> yeah. So something that I'm I'm really proud of in particular is in one of the projects that was kind of the main focus of my dissertation, actually, which was trying to understand the environmental context surrounding the transition to food production in Eastern Africa. So there's kind of, there's a couple of really critical kind of branch points in the development of kind of the modern world and modern human interactions with the environment. We have the origin of Homo erectus nearly 2 million years ago, where there was a big change in technology and environment and some people think we might have started doing things to modify our environment in a big way, like overhunting, to the transition to food production, which was this absolutely massive technological and cultural shift where we no longer had to rely on the environment for our food. We could make it ourselves. And that was critical. And then the third really critical branch point is this transition to the Anthropocene, where we now harness all of these or most of the natural processes in the world. So I've done projects kind of at each of these branch points. And one of my favorite and, and kind of the biggest thing that I've worked on so far was looking at this transition to food production. And for a long time, there was this really kind of simple narrative that in the environment in the last 10,000 years during the time when this transition was happening, switched from this kind of nice, rainy, wet environment in sub-Saharan Africa to a really dry environment. And so it was a big climatic change. And it was around this time that we notice uh, in the archaeological record, we see that people begin herding cattle, maintaining goats, making pottery, making figurines of cows. You know, it's it's when livestock really start to take off. So the idea was that, well, it was probably guided by this change, this, it, you know, this sort of change in the environment and climate necessitated this shift in food production. So what I did was I did a whole bunch of analyses to look at the environment surrounding that change. And one of the things that I found is it's pretty different depending on where you are. So um, in some places, it's it's it seems very consistent. Like, yes, it got very dry, and then suddenly lots of people have cattle. That seems like there's probably a relationship. But then there's a lot of places where that's definitely not the case. And this environmental change happened and this switch to food production was not at the same time, or in some places, the local environment didn't change at all, and nobody changed what they were doing. So there's, you know, when, when humans are involved, there's these really complex narratives to get into. Why, why then would people switch their livelihoods and start maintaining livestock? Why would they do this if it's not driven by environment? It could be a lot of reasons. It could be cultural, it could be political, it could be 
it was the cool new thing people were doing. I mean, there's, there's like, there's so many different things to think about. And now I'm, I'm expanding on this and I'm, I'm working with more colleagues and we're trying to really dig into people's diet shifts. So, okay. When people started keeping livestock, were they, were they actually eating those animals? Were they using those animal products? And some of the results that we're finding now is no, they didn't in some cases, which then opens in another entire field of questioning. Like, well, why, why would you go through all the bother to keep cattle and goats and all these things if you are not using the resource? It's so interesting. So that's, that's always been one of my favorite areas of research is this question of this shift to food production and what makes us modern humans. That's really interesting. And it's amazing. You can tell all of that just by the trace uh, isotopes. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's, you can get so much information from isotopes. And kind of the traditional ways that we've done this is by looking at mostly carbon. And carbon is, you know, comes from our food very directly. And so it's, it's sort of a tracer for diet source. Oxygen gives us some kind of indication of the environment that you lived in, how dry it might have been, how wet it might have been, how much seasonal variation there might have been. And if you have organic material preserved, you can look at nitrogen. And nitrogen tells you how high up on the food chain you were. So how much meat were you eating? Where were you relative to other things in the environment? So they're, they're super useful for these humble elements that are you know found everywhere around us in the natural world. That's really cool. I never thought about any of that. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the work we're doing now and the work that I'm going to move in, uh, particularly when I start at UBC, is looking at new isotope systems to give us more information on what people were eating and where organisms are found in their environment. So we're expanding, you know, we have these advances in instrumental technology where we can measure isotopes of a lot of different elements on the periodic table. So things like calcium, things like iron and lead and all of these other different elements. And we can, we're, we're trying to figure out if there are some of these other isotope systems that will tell us more of this environmental information. Some of them are promising, some of them are not. And it's, it's an exciting place to be when you're at the beginning of these new fields and you're exploring all these different possibilities to advance your, your methods. Are you down to the point where you can determine like what kind of meat they were eating? Almost. So we're getting there. So <laughs> I, I like the surprise look on your face. Yeah, so we're, we're getting to that point. So some of the things that we can get to and some of the promise that some of these new isotope systems can tell us is some of them might possibly be able to tell us if we were eating fish versus terrestrial um, organisms. And that's really important, especially in human evolution studies, because there's some evidence that Homo erectus was eating aquatic resources, could be shells or, or shellfish, could be fish, could be a variety of things. And then that opens a whole other line of questioning of how did they do that? Why did they do that? You know, what, what was the process? So we're working on different methods to do that. And probably uh, getting between kind of terrestrial and aquatic resources is one thing. The other thing that we're really trying to work on is trying to figure out better methods for determining how much meat organisms were eating, because that's another question that 
we really want to know, especially if you go back into the history of human evolution. There's been a lot of research over the last, I don't know, 50 years saying that meat eating was an important part of our evolution and our brain development and all of these different things. But we've never really had a good way to, to study that. So that's the next frontier. And we're, we're working on that actively now. And hopefully we'll have an answer in the next five, 10 years to that question. That's really exciting. I find that some of the best or most uh, shocking discoveries are when a field takes something that uh, has been repeated over and over and over again, uh, like meat eating is important for uh, brain development. And then someone finally tests it and realizes there's actually an even more exciting story going on behind that. So I'm excited for you. <laughs> yes. And I this was one of the pieces of advice I got as a grad student, which turned out to be the best advice on how to find a good project, which is when you read through the literature, sometimes you'll notice that something, an assumption is made over and over again. And you kind of track that down and say, where did that come from? And for me as a grad student, it was well, the spread of food production was facilitated by an environmental change. And I got really curious. I was like, what? where does this come from? I don't understand. And I traced that citation back, and I went back, and I went back to the original paper it was in in the 1970s, and it was a statement someone made with no data. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was asking to be tested. And you'd be surprised, or maybe not surprised, I don't know, with how many of these assumptions in a lot of fields have been handed down over decades, but nobody's really tested it. And those are the cool questions to chase down. In addition to um, crazy science, one of the uh, <laughs> craziest uh, things that I've heard is field work. Apparently, um, just, yeah, going out into the field can be nuts. It can be super exciting. It can be scary. Uh, do you have any crazy field stories you'd care to share today? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I love field work. One of the things that I love about what I do is that I get to spend a lot of time in the lab, which I also really love, but I also get to spend a lot of time in the field, which is great. And as I mentioned before, I work in a variety of different contexts and time periods. So for all of the paleo-oriented work that I do, that's largely in Kenya. Uh, and Uganda as well. And then I also have been working on projects on trying to look at pollution records and changes in uh, biogeochemical cycles. By biogeochemical, you mean cycling of carbon, nitrogen, things like that in cities over time. So in you know, when you're working in a city, doing doing field work in, in cities is always really fun and kind of weird because you're sort of wandering around and you can stop and get a coffee before you go to your field work and you could, you know, go pick up lunch somewhere. And it's generally pretty relaxed. And what I was doing was I was I was coring trees um, and I was looking at different isotopes. Basically, I was looking at radiocarbon, which decays over time, and stable isotopes, which don't decay in wood and urban trees. And the trees are owned by the city, but they're found in the curb strip between the sidewalk and the road in front of people's houses. So I had permission to go core 
but I would, you know, stand in front of someone's house and core a tree. And I got a lot of people who were very concerned with what I was doing and I would stop and explain it to them. And so, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's, it's funny because that's in, in quite sharp contrast to the work I do when I'm in East Africa, where we are way out in a rural environment. There's usually no cell service. Sometimes there aren't really roads. You know, there's not a whole lot uh, available to us. And the place where I work most of the time is in a kind of desert lake basin in northern Kenya called the Lake Turkana Basin. And it's famous because it has been the site where it has yielded so many, like an incredible rich diversity of hominid fossils, ancient human ancestors over the last four million years. And it has the first food producers in Eastern Africa. So when we're working in, in Turkana, it's a challenging place to work. It's very hot. The mean annual temperature is 40 C a year. Yeah, it's that's the mean. That's the mean annual temperature. So on a typical day of field work, you could be working anywhere between 30 and 50 C, depending on how unlucky you are that day. So it is really hot. You know, we're usually in a camp. We're out tent camping somewhere. We don't have refrigeration. Everything is cooked over a fire. You know, it's a it's a pretty rugged experience. And when you're out there, there's a lot of really kind of, you know, sometimes questionable things that can happen and funny things that can happen. So, I, you know, when I was a graduate student and I was mapping a bunch of sediments for a section that I was sampling for isotopes, I was looking at lake sediments and I was out with, I had a field assistant and he was looking at something else somewhere else. So I just said, well, I'm going to go around this corner and I'm going to take a look at this section and I might just get started describing it. And so I walked around the corner and there was this big section of sediments and I was mapping and, and staying there. And then my field assistant turned the corner and paused and said, you know, you're right in front of a hyena den, right? <laughs> and I, I turned around and you could see the you know, it's, you can tell it's a hyena den because they break open, like, you know, they break open bones to access marrow. So there's crunched bones everywhere and paw marks. And I just kind of, I just kind of walked calmly away and said, okay, I can find a different section, I think, for this part of my dissertation. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of things like that. And then one of my favorite stories was that I was mistaken for a ghost once while I was working in the field. Um, I was working in this place uh, called Lothagum, which is this about Miocene age, maybe 7 million year old uh, rock complex in the Turkana Basin. And I was looking at this site of sort of early fisher foragers. It was about 7,000 years old. And there were a bunch of lake sediments I was sampling and I was going up on top of the hill and then back down again. And I would repeatedly kind of go up to the top of this sediment hill and go back down. And then kind of across the way, there was a group of archaeologists I was working with who were excavating another site and they were kind of up on the hillside. So every time I popped back up, they could see me and I could see them and I'd go back down again. And... They were trying to pay some people in the area to kind of keep an eye on the site while we weren't there so we could leave a lot of our gear behind. 
And the local people who live in that area have a lot of kind of folklore about this particular part of the Turkana Basin and Lothagam in particular. And one of their stories is that it's full of ghosts and it's not a place where people go after dark. So they were really hesitant to take on the job of watching our stuff. And they were trying to talk to these two guys and say, you know, can you just can you just check on it and kind of take guard and, and we'll pay you for this many days? And they said, oh, there's no amount of money you could pay us. This place is definitely haunted. And one of the other archaeologists said, this is not haunted. And then he said that he was talking to this guy. He turned in the direction I was and his eyes got really wide and he pointed towards me and he said, right there, there's a ghost right there. <laughs> And the archaeologist working on the project said, that's not a ghost, that's a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, that was, that's one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite field stories. <laughs> Kendra, the friendly ghost. <laughs> yeah, I was a friendly ghost. I was just, you know, just doing my thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of kind of everyday adventure stories of massive rainstorms and flooding and flying in five-seater Cessnas and, you know, getting on boats and traveling to islands full of hippos and crocodiles. And <laughs> it's always a really adventurous trip out there. So let me ask you this. How realistic is Indiana Jones? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I would say that as an archaeologist, we don't generally go grave robbing. <laughs> when we When we remove artifacts, it is by explicit permission of local governments and permits, and they go straight to a museum. And yeah, no, <laughs> there's no taking of anything um, or any kind of, you know, tomb or anything like that. I kind of, it would be really fun almost if there were, you know, booby traps and, and riddles you had to get through if you were excavating. But usually you're just sort of, you know, wandering across the landscape, looking for bits and pieces of things or... If you're actually in an excavation, sitting and very slowly taking down inches of dirt at a time and mapping. So it's some aspects, it's a lot more boring, but I don't know. Some of the adventurous aspects of field work are kind of the same, actually. Why do you do the work that you do? What are its uh, implications to modern society? One of the things that interests me so much is trying to understand what our connection is to the planet and to the environment and trying to understand those deep connections. And I think that there's a tendency to feel like in the modern world, we're not a part of our environment. We're separate from it. We exist outside of it. When in reality, we are these major driving forces on the planet to such an extent that we're creating new environments we've never seen before, like urban ecosystems and croplands and exurbs and suburbs and all of these different places that we're making that have become their own ecosystems. And so the thing that I love so much about my work is I, I, I love being able to reconnect people to their environmental roots and to learn more about the deep history of what makes us human and what makes us humans as agents of change and as members of the earth system. So there's a there's a lot to connect the work that I do with modern kind of daily 
living. And there's also stories for us to learn about the past. You know, we're, we're in a situation right now where we are changing significant portions of the earth. We've harnessed a lot of earth processes and we are facing a lot of upcoming climatic and environmental changes. And this is something we have coped with before in human history, not in this context where we've covered most of the earth with cities and roads and, and this kind of stuff, but we have done this before. So I think there's clues to figure out how do we get through this period of time where we have environmental or climactic change occurring? What are some of the lessons we can learn from the past? What are some of the ways we've coped with this? What's been the outcome of those big events? Hearing you put modern humans in that uh, ancestral context, and since you study um, ancestral humans through uh, through isotopes, do you notice any like isotopic outliers with modern humans? Yeah, so there's some really cool stuff that changes when you get into kind of modern human diet. And this is a huge field of research. So the main thing with carbon isotopes, and we're looking at carbon, is what it can tell us is that it depends on the kind of, so it's it's sort of the carbon isotopes go all the way back to plants. That's where we start. And then plants take CO2 out of the air through photosynthesis, and there's different kinds of photosynthesis. And the different kinds of photosynthesis in different plants will separate out the isotopes of carbon differently. So they have this little signature of their photosynthetic process. Then an herbivore comes along and eats the plant, and it records that signature in its own tissues. And then a carnivore comes along and eats the herbivore, and it records that signal in its tissues, so it gets sort of propagated. So when we're talking about ancient humans, and particularly human ancestors as they were evolving in Africa, what we're mostly looking at are the difference between uh, tropical grasses, which use one particular kind of photosynthetic pathway, and woody plants and shrubs and berries, which use another pathway. So... It's a little bit ambiguous when we're looking at something like Homo erectus, because we know we were probably eating some degree of meat, and that, that meat we're eating might reflect what that herbivore was eating. It might be what we were eating. It's a little bit messy. But one thing is clear. We were definitely using a lot of resources in open, grassy environments. That's very clear from the isotopes. So there's something about kind of savanna, which are sort of um, sparsely tree populated grassy ecosystems that provided a lot of resources for us. And as we go through time, you go into the advent of food production. There's also a big dietary shift associated with that. So at the earliest food production, it's a little ambiguous, but then as people begin to specialize on things like cattle, cattle eat lots of grass so human teeth show this very distinctive signature of very grassy, grass-rich environments coming from the cows. Now, when you get into modern people and modern foodways, it's really different because we have really complex diets. We eat a lot of stuff. And factory farming has changed things a lot. So um, if you're eating, you know, maybe cattle that's grass-fed, which is pretty expensive, and that's not what most of us are eating. Um, you have that kind of signature of like of grasses in your biological tissues. But 
If you're eating a lot of um, rice or millet or different kinds of particular sorts of grains, that looks totally different. So the one thing that's happened a lot, especially in North America, is corn uses the same photosynthetic pathway as grass. And in the United States, high fructose corn syrup is in a lot of food we eat. So the most common, you know, American signature looks like corn, basically, because <laughs> most of what we eat is corn based. And then that changes depending on different kind of groups of people who might eat more rice or who might eat other kinds of foods that shifts pretty significantly. Um, and then the other kind of fascinating modern isotope uh, signature that we see a lot of is in the form of nitrogen isotopes. So I told you before that nitrogen is sort of tells you where you are on the food chain. But that depends on where you start, depends on what the base of that food chain is. So that sets the kind of base nitrogen isotope value. Again, this is the plants in our diet. And that nitrogen either comes from nitrogen in the natural environment or in the industrialized world, fertilizer. And fertilizer has a crazy nitrogen isotope signature. So tomatoes that have grown in a greenhouse can have a nitrogen isotope signature that's so far away from something that grows in a garden. And we see that too in kind of modern human diets as well. Um, I had a colleague at Utah, uh, Leslie Chesson was her name, and she published quite a bit on trying to characterize modern human diets. And the way she did that was by sampling fast food, because that's mostly what we eat. And she found that, you know, it's pretty homogenous. So a lot of us look like we're eating corn. It's a pretty homogenous diet. But oxygen isotopes, which come from water sources, is hyperlocal. So there's very distinctive local differences based on where you're getting your drinking water from. It's, there's so many different things you can tell from isotopes. And it's, it's really complex. And if you think about it, it's almost an impossible problem because you're distilling down an infinite number of sources to one or two numbers, which is a huge challenge. Um, but it's, there's some really cool stuff you can learn about tracing food systems and tracing the flow of elements through ecosystems that's really distinctive. So there's no Big Macium isotope. <laughs> there, yeah, there are Big Mac signatures. I think... I, I think a lot of the work that she did for that paper was sampling mostly McDonald's food as well as <laughs> other kinds of food. And then they also did a global map of McDonald's. I think it, I, I think it was Big Macs. I have to look. I haven't read this paper in a long time. And there's some variation globally <laughs> depending on the, the food source, which is pretty cool. Well, you're clearly really passionate about your work. Um, I'm curious, what's your favorite part of the work that you do? That is challenging. I, I love, I mean, I love going to the fields. I love a lot of the work I also do is in museums and museums are spectacular to work in. I love being in collections. Um, I love, I've always been kind of a tinkerer. So being in the lab has always suited me really well, you know, working on kind of issues of instrumentation and such. Um, but one of the things I, I really love doing is talking to people and sharing what I do and teaching people about 
just what you can learn from things you might not think about, like the elements in your tooth enamel, which is a permanent record of what you ate and where you've been. And it's always so fun to share these things with people and teach people about my work and how it connects to their everyday lives. Well, I think you're great at sharing it and making it interesting. I mean, the chemistry of teeth isn't the most enthralling topic, but you've made it <laughs> fascinating today. It gives you a lot to talk about when you go to the dentist. <laughs> now, I've got the inverse question. Um, what's the most challenging or the least rewarding part of your work? You know, I there's, there's a number of things, I think. You know, working in some of the most challenging issues we face are in my field in particular, are issues of diversity and inclusion and working in sub-Saharan Africa and, and the origins of our work, which is very colonial and imperial. And a lot of people are working really hard to increase representation of our colleagues from the global south in our field. And there's just so many barriers to that to break down, and it's a huge effort, and it, it can often be really overwhelming, and it can be a, a big struggle to feel like you're, you're pushing and you're, you're trying to make a difference, and you're trying to improve access to your field. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that can be extremely frustrating, but I think there's a really good global concerted effort to improve that. And I see things improving. I see things getting better. So I, I have more hope than I used to. Um, and then I also think that, you know, a lot of the difficulties, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, especially when you're working in this field, which is very analytical and very technical, the instruments that we use are extremely sensitive and they're notorious for breaking down frequently. And, the community that works in stable isotopes and particularly works on these instruments, they're called isotope ratio mass spectrometers. Um, there's kind of like a, it sort of has this hobbyist vibe to it. And people love to work together to solve issues in their instrumentation. And there's a lot of things that you often have to teach yourself over time that you have no idea what you're doing and you learn. And there's also a lot of kind of, um, what's the word for it? A lot of people are very superstitious about their machines because sometimes you truly don't know why it broke down and then it works and you don't know why it works again. <laughs> so the kind of, the sort of day-to-day -day technical aspect of doing the work can often be really frustrating too. But um, it's fortunately such a great community of people and there's been this listserv that's been running since the mid-90s called Isogeochem, which is basically a listserv where everyone involved in isotope geochemistry posts their mysterious questions of their instruments breaking down, and we all try to help each other fix each other's instruments all across the world. So it's, it's a really good community to be in. I, uh, I frequently blame my computer uh, problems on ghosts in the machine or... <laughs> <laughs> The lore in isotope geochemistry is that they're gremlins. Yes. <laughs> now, you touched on this briefly. Um, our field uh, does have some issues with uh, diversity, certainly. Um, and so I'm curious, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented communities? And has that impacted your studies in any way? 
Yeah. So I identify as uh, a member of the LGBTQ community. I'm queer or bisexual. And, you know, in general, I've found, you know, I working in this particular field, I still have an extraordinary privilege of being a white woman from the Western world. So there's a lot more when I think about access to the field, I think the most critical issues are, are getting our colleagues from the global south to participate more, to have more money to participate, to be able to uh, receive quality graduate education, those kinds of things. Um, but in a broader sense, you know, I'm, I've been very open and I'm very passionate about mentoring LGBTQ students in earth sciences. And, you know, one of the biggest issues one of the biggest barriers I think for members of this particular community is safety in the field and not feeling like they're going to go to a country that might be unsafe for them to work there. And that's been one of the biggest historical issues in my particular line of work. But fortunately, this is happening in a lot of earth science, I think, where the traditional ideal of an earth scientist or a geologist was that you went wherever you needed to go in the field and you tromped around in the mountains or the desert and you you were there for 6 weeks and you mapped and you know that's what makes an earth scientist but we're we're coming to see that there's a lot of different ways to do our work in a way that's safe and inclusive and for lgbtq folks um, using things like museum resources and feeling like, you know, they don't have to go to a country that might be unsafe for them based on their identity um, has really helped improve access to different groups of people in the field. <laughs> so it's, we, we're definitely making some progress here. And I, there's so much to learn from museum collections and you don't have to go map in a place that might be dangerous for you to be an earth scientist. There's a lot of different things you can do uh, to be an earth scientist. So those are the, the two biggest issues, I think, for diversity and inclusion that we're working towards. Um, and the things that I'm, I'm, I particularly am especially kind of passionate about and invested in working towards as a member of this field. For the record, to anyone who's listening, I didn't ask Kendra to make such a, an impassioned plug for the museum field, uh, but I do <laughs> sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Of course, it's true. It's just museum collections are amazing. You uh, answered the question for, that I asked you earlier, which is um, how does your, your work contribute to modern society? So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Again, uh, a tangential question would be uh, if you feel like your field is generally welcoming or more insular. You said things are getting better, but where do you uh, peg it right now? It's interesting. We're at a really interesting inflection point where I think there's a lot of turnover happening and a lot of kind of the old guard people who had been in the field kind of in the middle of the 20th century are leaving, you know, they're 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 aging out or they've passed away or, you know, things are just changing and, and turning over. And there's a newer, younger group of people who's running these field projects and who's working in these places. And along with this has come this infusion of desire to right a lot of the wrongs at the beginning of our field. So this is really true in paleoanthropology. And paleoanthropology has been making a really good concerted effort to 
especially fix these issues of colonialism in the field and to be very open and to, and to address the history of where it comes from and to do better. And in that regard, we're thinking a lot more about accessibility to um, meetings and ways to get um, underrepresented scholars involved in the field and especially students who need it most of all. So one of my favorite meetings that I love attending that I try not to miss is the East African Association for Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, where we meet in a different country in Eastern Africa, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, and we all come together and we, we meet in a place where our colleagues who are there don't have to pay these big ticket prices to go to Europe or North America or elsewhere to go to a meeting. And I, I love coming together in that way. And there's a lot of graduate students who are able to attend that meeting that can't go to the other meetings. Um, we also have different societies that will meet. Um, the Society for Africanist Archaeologists rotates its meeting locations. So it's somewhere on the African continent every, I think it's every two years, uh, it's somewhere on the African continent, and then it's somewhere in Europe or North America the next two years. So it, it kind of rotates around. I also think one of the, the surprising positives of the pandemic has been that people who might not have been able to afford conferences or meetings can attend through video conferencing. And we've been able to have more people sort of attend meetings from where they're located, which is excellent. And we've been able to um, have kind of seminar series and meetings and, and, and sort of center the people who might have been disadvantaged in the past. So they'll be on, you know, Kenyan time or somewhere in European time. It's not great for us on the West Coast. <laughs> it's, it's quite an offset of time, but it's a huge plus to our colleagues who are there. And there's also been an increase in funding opportunities to attend meetings and a push for getting more opportunities for students to um, attend graduate school and have more of their fees paid for. So there's, I really do see it making a difference. I see things really shifting and changing in, an, in a meaningful way. It's progress is slow always, especially in academia. But I, I truly see things moving in a positive direction. That's a really optimistic uh, yeah, image that you're creating. Yeah, that fills me with a lot of hope. Uh, like you said, progress is usually glacially slow, but it sounds like things are actually moving in more of a human timescale uh, where you can see the improvements. Um, and it's also really nice to know that a field that uh, historically, like you said, has been pretty morally checkered is now so passionately embracing um, responsibility. And the paleoanthropologists that I've met have been some of the fiercest defenders of uh, local rights and traditional people's rights um, and just being respectful of what they're studying. Yes, it's 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 so important. It's it's so important. And, you know, the history, you know, human evolution is everybody's history. And it's really awful to think that it had this this past where significant proportions of the population of the global population were were excluded from doing this work especially when those fossils are 
you know, we don't have scholars who work and live in the countries where these fossils are coming from. That's a huge problem. It's it's just a it's a glaring problem, really. So I I'm so happy to see it shifting and changing and improving. That's really positive. I mean, there's a there's a lot of different factors I think that are are improving from diversity and inclusion, kind of at Earth sciences broadly as well, and um, just creating more access for different kinds of scholars to participate is so positive because, I mean, it's really hurtful. It's not good for our science when we only have one perspective, which has been overwhelmingly Western, white, male, cisgendered, straight, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's, you need diversity of opinion and diversity of viewpoints, and that's what creates creativity and equity so it's it should be one of our highest priorities, and I'm really glad that it has become one of our highest priorities. Now, you touched on this earlier as a bit of a benefit. Um, one thing that has kind of been a, a great leveling force has been the COVID-19 pandemic. And you mentioned that, you know, it's, it's uh, forced a lot of these uh, conferences online and made them more accessible for um, people around the world. Uh, I'm wondering how else has COVID impacted you in your work and research or has it at all? Have you been able to do field work during this? Yeah. So no field work for me, unfortunately. Um, but you know, actually for me, it's, it's been okay because I've been going to the field for 10 years and I have frankly a backlog of samples <laughs> to work through and a variety of things to get done. So it's it's been a good opportunity to wrap up a lot of open projects, which is really nice. Um, the thing that has been challenging for COVID is, you know, we our instruments, our very sensitive temperamental instruments, you know, need a lot of maintenance. They need work and we still need to go into the lab and check on them. And we we've been able to, we shut down the lab completely for about four or six months at the beginning of the pandemic. And then we reopened and turned the instruments back on, got everything back up to speed. And we're continuing to do lab work in a sort of a reduced capacity. It's been a challenge because there's, you know, graduate students who need to finish their dissertations, who need to go into the lab and they need training. So we've been uh, really cautious and we've put in place um, well, the university that I'm at now, which is University of Oregon, has put in place a lot of different um, restrictions and a lot of different guidelines for best practices. So we limit the number of people who can be in the lab at the same time. We double mask. We we try to be really careful. But yeah, our, our work, it's unfortunately still has to keep going, at least in a, a reduced capacity. So we, we've been able to get some work done, but not nearly as much as we would like. And yeah, all travel has stopped. So no museum work, no field work for now. Um, but one of the other things that I think is also quite nice is I've sort of evaluated a lot of data sets that I've had and a lot of data and samples that I have kind of kicking around where nothing has sort of become of them. And one of the things that I'd, I'd really like to do and that I'm trying to do is sort of parsing out those samples to grad students who need chapters for their dissertations, who have been impacted by COVID 
and you know I've been working with some of my colleagues to find data sets and things that we can kind of donate to grad students in need really <laughs> who you know unfortunately are in a place where they they need to keep going and they need more to work on and they need to finish their dissertations so it's been great i think it, it's kind of forced us all to slow down and evaluate the work that we're doing and what comes next and what we need to do next and also to help us kind of decide which things we should be working on ourselves, which things should we share with other people and stuff like that. So I, I actually, for me, it's been kind of a net positive, actually. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not the worst thing that has happened for my work in my lab, surprisingly. And then just because you mentioned um, how so much of your, your work is trying to uh, build the capacity and build opportunities in, um, in Africa, for their local researchers. We hear all about COVID in Europe and Asia and uh, North America, but we don't really hear about what's going on in Africa. Uh, have your colleagues over there been able to keep doing their research? Have they been hit as hard as we have? Yeah, so it varies from place to place. And I think in general, yeah, in general, Kenya has not been hit quite as hard from COVID. and. There's a lot of theories as to why this is. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time outside, which might be part of the reason. Um, I know that our my museum colleagues have been in the museum and they're sort of, there's fortunately no researchers there. We're the biggest threat to their health, frankly. So staying away from the museum is, is the good thing to do. And that's what most people have been doing, if not everybody up until this point. So our, our local... Uh, collaborators and the people who run the museum have been able to uh, work in the museum in a distanced fashion, which is really good. Um, field work, I don't know if anyone, I don't, I don't think any of my collaborators in Kenya have gone to the field yet, but I think the general consensus is if you are going to the field someplace where you're local and it's a small group and you, you stay outside, you spread out, etc., it's generally considered safe, um, but fortunately, that's that's for our Kenyan colleagues. For everyone else traveling in, I think the general consensus is is not to go to the field, which is a good thing. I think traveling is the, is the biggest issue. So, fortunately, our our colleagues have been able to travel. In some places, like in the Turkana Basin, where there really aren't indoor spaces, everything is very open. Even the field station is kind of like three-sided structures with detached roofs to allow for airflow and things like that. It's actually, it's ironically quite COVID safe. If you were able to get there, you could do research, but traveling is a real issue and it would put people in danger. So our colleagues who are in Kenya are able to do work, which is great for them. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. It's a, mm -hmm. a rare COVID positive story. I know. Now I'm curious, you've got... Um, You've got such an amazing catalog of work. Um, you're an inspiring speaker. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this uh, thinking, how do I become the next Dr. Kendra Kritz? Uh, so what background or courses or experience would you recommend to young people who are uh, planning a career in this area? Or I shouldn't even say young people, just people in general. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Isotope geochemistry and... 
the kinds of applications that I use are so diverse and there's so many different fields or departments or training you could get that would kind of get you to the same place. Um, I, I, my, my bachelor's, as I mentioned before, my, my undergraduate degree was in biology and I minored in chemistry. And then I realized I really liked this technique and I had essentially no earth science background. So I took a couple geology classes. And then when I did a PhD, I was also in a very funny situation where my advisor is a geochemist and an earth scientist, but he had an appointment in a biology department. So I was in a biology department, essentially doing a PhD in earth science, even though my PhD is technically in biology. But there's there's a lot of people who are in this kind of situation, people who uh, have PhDs in, in anthropology, PhDs in geography, environmental science. There's a lot of directions to come from. But if you want to do the kind of particular work that I do, if you're interested in kind of fossils and paleo environments, definitely good earth science uh, background and training with some um, ecology is very useful. And uh, also chemistry is quite useful as well. And I know a lot of people always get people either have a really good association with chemistry or a terrible association with chemistry, but it's really helpful for this field. It's some basic chemistry training. So that was my chemistry background and my analytical experience helped me get started in this field. And then I, I kind of picked up everything else I needed as I went along. And if you're working on kind of historic timescales, if you're interested in, in kind of Anthropocene human environment stuff, that can be within the realm of biogeochemistry. And that can be found in either an earth science department, a biology department, an environmental science department. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I did my, my bachelor's in biology, my PhD is technically in biology, although I don't know, I would call myself a biologist. I did a postdoc in an urban ecology lab. I did a second postdoc in the human origins department at the Smithsonian. And then I taught in a geography department. <laughs> so you, you're kind of a chameleon. You can fit into a lot of different places. And that's also the strength of isotope geochemistry. And that's why we get to ask these cool questions because you have all this input. You, you, it leads to so much creativity studying all these different perspectives and it's it's led to some of the the coolest most interesting uh things that i have done have resulted from input from colleagues from all different fields so it's a diverse field there's a lot of different ways you can get here it's so important to not just have um in a sense external diversity but also internal uh diversity um experiences like you said from different uh fields yeah <laughs> different uh knowledge pools to, to draw from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've, I, you know, I, I've done, I've taken courses and I've, I've read papers and I've talked to colleagues from all different fields that have changed the way I look at my own data and have led me to some really cool directions and conclusions. And when I was a grad student, I took a three-week course in paleoclimatology, which was mostly for oceanographers. And what that ended up doing for me is it changed the way I looked at my 
kind of paleo environmental records and the way I thought about the data and the way I presented the data, because I loved what the oceanographers did, which is they they generate these um, kind of records of isotopes or various things, and they lay them all side by side on a big panel. And I thought, that's so great. What a great way of presenting data. And so that really inspired me to change how I did it. And, you know, you talk to people from different fields who just give you this new way of looking at things. And that's my favorite part of my career. And it's, yeah, you're totally right. That diversity extends from all different angles. It extends from academic diversity as well as diversity of different kinds of people participating. So it's, it makes science better. It really does. Narrowing that down a little bit, what would you consider to be the most important course uh, that you took in school? Important for what I did or important for, I don't know, my life perspective? <laughs> Either or. I just got you to model things holistically like that and uh, say that no one thing is truly important. And now I'm asking you to do the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I one of the first things I took when I started graduate school was a short course in stable isotopes and it's called isocamp it's been running for a long time it's kind of it's sort of famous now because a lot of people have gone through it and it's a graduate it's aimed at graduate students but also postdocs and faculty and industry workers interested in stable isotopes <clears throat> and it happens every summer and it used to happen at university of utah it's now moved to university of new mexico and that course was extraordinarily helpful because it, it embraced the diversity of people working in isotopes. So one day there was a lecture on the water cycle, and the next day there was a lecture on paleoecology, and then the next day it's nitrogen and biogeochemistry and that kind of stuff. And it, you know, every single day was something different. And the other thing that was great about Isocamp is you had all of these people who were leaders in their field who would give the lectures. And they would hang around and you could just talk to them about your project or what they do. And you're just in this constantly mixing and shifting group of diverse scholars learning a lot of different things. So that was really foundational to the work that I do and kind of my thinking, as well as that other camp, that short course in paleoclimatology. That was really good, too. Um, I think... When uh, So the other class that comes up surprisingly frequently, then I, I use it probably more than I ever thought I would, were actually my undergraduate chemistry courses. And you'd be surprised how many times I need to make a stock solution of something and I can remember the equation for calculating, you know, how to calculate the molarity from a stock solution. And it just is from the back of my head. <laughs> or, you know, different things about analytical stuff and solvents. I, it's, it's shocking to me how often I actually use that knowledge and how often I crack open my general chemistry textbook to look something up in the lab. So that was, I've, I was sort of surprised by that, but I use that the most, I think, in my day-to-day -day life. That's great. If it's already in your head, you don't even have to look it up on the iPhone. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I'm curious. Um, you're quite an inspiring figure, but did you have any anyone who inspired you when you were coming up? Yeah, so I I when I was growing up, I I got really interested in science and I really 
was inspired by sort of female scientific role models, in particular Jane Goodall. I read her biography when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, My Life with Chimpanzees, and I, I loved it. I really loved it. And I just loved how you know, she was this young woman who went and did something no one had ever done before and changed the way that we think about apes and their behavioral interactions with each other. And she had this extremely adventurous life living in Gombe and studying chimps. And my parents also subscribed to National Geographic, and I would just steal National Geographic issues and just rummage through them. And I just, I just wanted to be an explorer scientist so bad. <laughs> and I definitely, yeah, I took a lot from, from the things I would learn in the magazine. And then as well as uh, particularly Jane Goodall's biography was really kind of moving to me. And I, I, you know, there weren't a whole lot in there. Well, there weren't a whole lot of sort of female scientific role models at the time. So reading Jane Goodall's biography about a, a real scientist who who had that kind of adventurous life was so inspiring. And I just, that was what I really wanted to do. Well, that explains why you're such a great science communicator too. I mean, uh, National Geographic is an excellent uh, publication at communicating science. And Jane Goodall is almost the, the mother of science communication. I can't think of someone who's been as good as she has um, quite as early as she was doing it. No, absolutely. She's she's always had a knack for communicating to groups of people and she speaks so clearly and so engagingly. Um, it's it's always wonderful to hear her talk. Now, uh, going back to you personally, um, looking to the long term of your career, uh, you seem to be like at the midpoint of your career. So this is still a long ways off. But what would you like to be the legacy of your efforts or your career? What would you want written on your career's tombstone when you retire? That's an interesting question. Um, I really hope that I can change some of our deep perspectives on human environment interactions. I really, you know, scientifically, that's the one thing that I, I really hope I'm able to do effectively. And I hope that I'm able to shift the way we view ourselves relative to our environment. And if I can get people to think more consistently or or to be to be able to think about deep time in their everyday lives, that would be really cool. And it's it's something you have to be trained to do. It's not easy to do, to think across deep time scales. But I really like adding the element of time into our understanding of the environment. And <clears throat> on, a, on a kind of personal level, I, my biggest hope and goal for my career is that I use my position as a professor and, and my role of authority to increase diversity and representation in my field. That's, that's absolutely one of my top priorities because it's, it's up to all of us to do this and it's up to especially faculty members to do this. And if I can just increase that a little bit, I hope I can do more than a little bit, but if I can increase that and diversify our field, that would be really meaningful to me. Well, based on what I've heard to today, um, I think you'll be really successful at it. Um, Thank you. Uh, so I'm also curious, many fields are changing at a revolutionary pace. Um, and I hear a lot of people saying when they retire that what 
they're retiring from is nothing like the industry or the field that they got started with. So I'm curious, where do you see your field going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people who are entering into this field uh, so that they can take advantages of those changes or, or not be left behind? Yeah, so there's there's a number of things. I think one of the biggest changes and the biggest accelerations that I've noticed in the isotope world in particular is that it's getting cheaper and easier and faster to get data. And this has been a huge positive because we have more stable isotope data to work with. Whereas in the old days, getting a single isotope measurement on, let's say you had, you had one tooth enamel sample, how long would that take? Besides, you know, after you've, you've sampled the tooth, you've drilled the powder, you've flown back home, you've got it ready to go. You know, in order to basically you'd have to digest it in acid under vacuum and then put it into the mass spectrometer and then analyze it. And that would be a long process that would take many hours. Now that process takes, I don't know, 10 minutes once you do the digestion. Yeah, it's fast. It's really fast. Or I guess if you with the acid digestion, okay, maybe an hour in 10 minutes. The analysis is 10 minutes. So it's sped up the process a lot, and there's more data to work with. The downside is that there's more data that's being pumped out, and quality control is not as good. So there's kinds of two things that I, I hope happens. I hope that um, sort of the, the kind of quality control and the data that we're generating, you know, we don't sacrifice that in order to have more data, because more data is not better. And I also hope that um, we can really get a handle on these new isotope systems that we're learning, especially as it relates to paleoecology. And I hope that in the future, we're pursuing some of these new methods and new techniques as full on as we are with the older methods and techniques that have become sort of standard for us. And so I think for for students or anyone looking to do the kind of work that I do, you know, the future is moving beyond just carbon and oxygen and nitrogen. We're moving into um, strontium and lead and calcium and magnesium. You know, any all the, the periodic table is open to us for exploration. So uh, that's one thing. Oh, another thing that's becoming kind of a really exciting area of research in isotope geochemistry is trying to get our samples smaller and smaller because as you go back in time, you have less preserved material. If you're looking at organic material in fossil soils, for instance, there's less of it there. So there's less to work with. But as we can get our samples smaller and smaller and smaller, as our instruments get better and our methods get better, that pushes back the distance and time we can go. And that's super exciting. So being able to improve our analytical methods is is also a new direction that we're moving in that's, that's going to really revolutionize the field. It sounds like you're describing opposite processes. On the one hand, um, the traditional fields are becoming um, almost industrial in their knowledge production or data production. Uh, but on mm -hmm. the other hand, new venues are opening up uh, with more of a boutique uh, processing. That's a really good way of describing it, actually. Yeah. So there's the the kind of the the standard methods of isotope geochemistry 
most of the basic work that I do and a lot of us do is becoming yeah, almost industrialized. It's 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 really easy to get the data and it's it's pretty affordable. And there's still, you know, the field is young, but there's still a lot to know and we're still like there's always more data to be generated and there's more to learn. But then on the other side, you know, for a lot of us who work in this field and work in method development, we're kind of the the developers of isotope geochemical methods rather than only being users of the methods. We're trying to explore new ways to unlock more sources for isotopic information and data. So they're happening simultaneously, which is fascinating. And it's it's been really cool to go to meetings with isotope geochemists and paleoecologists and see the diversity of work that's being done and seeing these two things happening side by side where someone will give a presentation with a thousand isotope measurements, which is a lot. And then a presentation of like, oh, we've pushed the sample size of organic material down another factor and we're getting it out of you know, bones this old. And it's, it's really cool. It's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like I could have five more interviews with you, but I, <laughs> I know you've got a lot on your plate. So I'm going to, uh, those are all the questions I sent you. And I think you've done an excellent job of answering them. Before I let you go, though, is there anything else you'd like to share? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm, I miss <laughs> the last thing I would just say is I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to UBC and <laughs> getting to work and getting started there and especially looking forward to going to the Pacific Museum of Earth and seeing what you have hiding in the collections <laughs> to work on. I'll take you on a tour. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Kendra, and have a great afternoon. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.